will be in Job 38 and 40 and some other places. When someone is crushed in spirit or in soul or in body, typically what we would do in terms of an approach to that person is approach tenderly, you know, quietly, gently. It's what we often find ourselves expecting out of God and out of Scripture. And yet that's not how God approaches Job. Job is crushed. Job is to the point of no more words. Job's life is a complete mess. All of his children dead. His body broken. He's at the point of death but not dying. Everything is wrong that could possibly go wrong in a person's life with Job. And the Lord comes to him, we're told in Job 38, verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Over in chapter 40, verse 1, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice. And I will add nothing more. Father, you came to Job when he was in the worst of all circumstances in a way that is unexpected. Actually, Father, stunning. Thundering out of the whirlwind. And I, I want to understand. You come to Job, Lord, in a way that just, well, as so often, you just surprise us. But I am convinced, Father, you know exactly what you're doing. I know by faith you have your reasons. But I pray this morning you would shed some light on this for us. In the wake, Father, of the Tesoro accident, in the wake of so many struggles and difficulties we have on this planet, in the wake of our personal trials and heartaches, Lord, we pray that you would come and speak to us. But Lord, learning that we want you to come however you see fit whether that's quietly and gently or even blasting out of the storm. Lord, You know what we need. You know how we will best hear You. And Father, I pray that we would hear You this morning by the speaking of Your Holy Spirit through Your Word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the winds of change have come and Job is blown away. He quickly learned something that shook him to the core. In these few chapters, and we began into them Wednesday night, chapters 38 and 39, we'll finish this Wednesday. And Job's world is literally rocked. For months, he's been calling out to God. And we've tracked this week after week. We've followed through as Job has been demanding 
His audience with God. He's been saying things like, Job 13, verse 3, I desire to argue with God. You ever said that? Maybe not out loud, but you ever been there in heart? Job 23, verse 3, he said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I may come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No. Surely he would pay attention to me. (laughs) Wow. And in his closing words, Job said in Job 31 verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Let the Almighty answer me. Job apparently didn't realize what far too many people don't realize. Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For all our discussions of the sweetness and the gentleness and the meekness of Jesus, we must understand at the backdrop of all this, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You want an audience, Job? Boom! You got one. And the Lord shows up. Verse 3 of chapter 38, He says, Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Gird up your loins like a man. No offense, Jim, but that's, that's like me telling another man I want to be intimate with him. It, it, it's difficult for me. Okay? And I know what my brother's saying. Gird up your loins like a man? That sounds so, so pansy, you know. But that's not what God is saying. And that's our culture getting in the way. In Hebrew culture, well, this is pre-Hebrew culture, in Job's day, man, to gird up your loins was an incredibly manly thing to do because it was taking the outer rope, tucking it into the belt so that you could run, so that you could work, so that you could fight. To gird up your loins is to prepare for battle. To stand up. And that's what the Lord is saying. Brace yourself like a man. Other translations read. Brace yourself. On your feet, Job. I've got some questions for you. And the Lord begins in chapter 38 through chapter 41 to bombard Job with question after question after question. We learned Wednesday night 60 questions from the Lord. 60 questions that end the debate and put Job immediately in his place. And the wonderful thing about these 60 questions, wonderful and yet confusing, is that through them all, God doesn't answer Job a single question. For all that Job has been asking, God doesn't give an answer. Not one. Not even the hint of an answer. God takes Job into the classroom of creation and begins to ply him for answers to questions that only God could answer. Things only the Lord truly can know. He leaves Job with his hand over his mouth, as Job says in chapter 40. Breathless, wordless, and taken down several notches. Which is impressive because he was already down so low. He was already at the bottom. And God takes him lower. And that's difficult for me to understand. Because as I said a few minutes ago, when someone's at the bottom, we tend to approach gently. We want to bring them up. God comes to Job and effectively just goes and puts him down in his place. A couple of questions that just 
are floating out there, I'd like to address this morning. Truly, as we come to the last Sunday, I believe that we'll be in the book of Job. Who knows? Maybe one more. Two questions. Why does God put Job down? And secondly, why does God answer Job with questions rather than with answers? First question, why does God put Job down? Understand, as we've seen, that Job was the go-to guy of the day. He truly was the person that you would go to for help, you would seek for advice, for wisdom, for counsel, for care and compassion, for financial aid if necessary. Job was the man. Job chapter 1 verse 3 told us he was the greatest of all the men of the East. And by the time we get to chapter 31, we're told the three men, that is Elihu, uh, Bildad, no, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they stopped questioning Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And that was part of the problem. He was a good guy. Yes, he loved the Lord. Obviously, by his behavior before all this started. And we gather that through the narrative. He served God. He cared about the things God cared about. Job was good and righteous and benevolent and kind and full of mercy. But we can get into the place where I believe Job was, where we begin to think, I am in good standing before the Lord. It's all good. I have it all together before God. I remind you of this often, mainly because I need to be reminded of it often myself, that the only thing that brings us into good standing with the Lord is His grace. Blood bought by Jesus Christ at the cross. That's the only thing that provides us, allows for good standing. I hate to tell you, but it's not your showing up here today. It's not the verses you may or may not have memorized last week. Ladies, it's not the fact that you went to the Beth Moore seminar yesterday. That did not put you in better standing with the Lord. No, only His grace through Jesus at the cross. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We must continue to recognize this. We've got to keep grace forefront in our minds. We've got to realize that we function and move and live in grace because it's usually in our strength that our weaknesses become most pronounced. What do you mean? It's when we're sure that we can't fall that we usually do. And I've shared this before. When we're in the place of weakness, that's the time when we're crying out for all the strength we can get from God. I don't know that I can handle this. Please help me, Lord. But I'll tell you, when we're feeling good and righteous and holy and strong and standing up before the Lord and proud of where we are, that's the most dangerous place in a Christian's walk. The Bible says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 I think about David. He's in this place now. He's two years old on Monday. And David is standing up on chairs and tables and anything that puts him up as high as possible. And he still doesn't fully have his sea legs. I mean, he's still a little wobbly. And we will turn around and he'll literally be standing. We have these stools by our counter in the house and and we'll find him standing on the stool. (laughs) And you know what I do as a father when I see that? I put him down. I put him down. I don't say, David, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. That's not the kind of put down. 
Which is exactly what the Lord is doing with Job. The put-downs, so-called, of God are not like the put-downs of men. We're not talking about tearing into someone just to raise ourselves up. We spend some time on this on Wednesday. The Lord doesn't need to put you down, put me down to raise Himself up. He's already as high as you can get. He's God. He has all glory and all splendor and all wonder. And we truly are insignificant by comparison. To put down a man would be like you going up to an ant and going, I'm going to show you, you know. It would make no sense. But God puts Job down. He lifts him off of the place where Job can fall. And puts him in a place that's safer. Now it's difficult for Job to recognize and understand all this, but he needs putting down. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly. But the haughty He knows from afar. Well again, someone might protest, Yeah, but Job is already so far down. Why does God show up in the storm? Why in the whirlwind, blasting out in thunder? I mean, the Lord truly does thunder in the terror of the howling winds. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So why approach Job in the storm, adding terror to all of his trials? Well, to answer that, let's go to another storm. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 14. Another storm was pounding Kinnerot. Kinnerot, or the Sea of Galilee, as we know it. It was late one night. And the apostles are out on the boat. We're told in verse 22 of Matthew 14, one of my favorite stories. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. This was a nasty one. I share with you, this can often happen on the Sea of Galilee. These winds come flying through there, whipping up storms in whirlwind fashion, and torments and torrents in incredible ways. And the apostles are out in the midst of that. And when you're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee at night with the storms blowing, you can't see the shores. It's far enough out there. You're being tossed and turned. And the apostles are in the midst of this horrifying situation. The Greek word's here for, for uh, battered and contrary. Battered and contrary in verse 24. Battered is literally tormented, and contrary is literally hostile. So they're under tormenting, hostile winds and storm. And there's another element here that is not shared in any of the Gospels. There's something else, a little background for this story to understand. Men of the sea tend to run high on superstition. And there was a superstition well known among Galilean fishermen of the day, which was simply this. If you saw a ghost out on the sea, you were a dead man rowing. Okay? To see a ghost on the sea was to know you were about to be drowned. Now this was a superstition. Was it legitimate? Of course not. But that's what the Galilean fishermen believed. See a ghost, you're going down. And look at verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. Jesus shows up walking on the sea. He knows this. He's got to know what the traditions, the customs, even the superstitions are. He's heard them. When the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, It is a ghost! 
And they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. He comes walking out on the sea. It's between 3 and 6 a.m. The disciples see Him coming. And they cry, Ghost. We're dead. That's it. They were already terrified. Jesus comes to them in such a way that now they are even more terrified. They're already in the storm when Jesus comes walking through the storm to them. Was He just playing into their fears? I mean, what were you thinking, Lord? Now, if life wasn't at stake here, I'd say that was a great practical joke. I mean, I can see Jesus having some fun with the power, you know. Watch this, you know, walk. This will be fun. I mean, that's what I would think. Why did He choose to come walking to them on the water? By the way, some of you may recall, we looked at this. Job prophesied that would happen. I don't know that he knew it, but Job chapter 9, verse 8, tells us, Job speaking, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea. Which is exactly what Jesus would do. But why did Jesus come walking on the water, in the storm, in the fourth watch of the night. First of all, note this. When the Lord comes in a storm, He comes to save. When God comes in a storm, He comes to save. Verse 32, down in Matthew 14, tells us when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Jesus gets in. Everything dies down. Everything's quiet. As when Jesus had previously calmed the sea. When the Lord comes in the storm, He comes to save. He saw the apostles struggling. Now think about this. To be there, to rescue, to help them. Now, yes, He had the power. He could have done it from shore. But Jesus' heart for His apostles, He sees them struggling and He makes a beeline for them. He doesn't walk around to the other side and call from the shore, keep rowing, keep rowing, you'll make it. He goes straight to where they are. He meets them in the heart of the storm because when Jesus comes in the storm, He comes to save. But you need to understand this as well. Before Jesus saved them, there were two things critical. They needed to know they needed saving, for one. And secondly, they needed to know Jesus was big enough to do the saving. It tells us in Matthew 14.33, those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, you are certainly God's Son. It's two chapters before Peter will say, you're the Christ, Son of the living God. The men on the boat that night declared Jesus as Messiah. They needed to know He could do it. They needed to know He was big enough to save them, and Job needed to know both those things. Job, going back to chapter 38, he needed to know that he needed saving. That his righteousness, as righteous a man as he was, was not good enough to get him to God. That his goodness and his mercy and all his works of benevolence, not good enough. Job had to come to the place where he recognized he needed saving, but, and here's part of the reason God came blasting out of the storm, Job needed a big God. Job, at this point in his life, needed to know God is sufficient to handle everything that has happened to me, to cover every possibility here, to come swooping in and save me. How about you? Do you realize, first of all, that you need saving? That's one of the most, that's the first thing you've got to know when you come to Jesus. You want to become a Christian? It's not a club. You know, don't come to sign up for a club, it's not what it is. You have to know you need saving. And until you get to that place, 
you're not going to feel like you need Jesus. And that's just the reality of all of our lives. Many of you have come from that place. You felt pretty good for, for seasons and for years until finally something broke loose and you realized, man, I can't do this. I really do need help. Oh, Christianity is just a crutch. It's more than a crutch. <laughs> it is your life. You've got to know you need saving. And without Jesus, you don't have it. We Christians have a word for people who don't know Jesus. Lost. And it's not a word I apologize for. Because it speaks exactly to the situation all of us were in before we were found by Jesus. Without Him, we are lost. Lost at sea, lost in the canyons, lost in the dark. We need Jesus. And without Him in our lives, we are struggling, wandering, lost. We need to know we need saving. But Christians... You may be able to answer that question. Can you answer this one? Do you know, do you understand that God is big enough to save? Do you believe that He is great enough to handle your problems? He can handle everybody else's, but mine are pretty big this week. I got some struggles that, you know, I'm not sure that He really has the uh, sufficiency to deal with. I mean... I don't know that you'd say that out loud, but how often in our lives do we just struggle because we just don't think God's paying attention? And in essence, what our faith is saying, or our lack of faith, is you can help everybody else, you can't help me. It's one of the most bogus thoughts that could possibly enter the the human mind, and yet it does all the time. Is He big enough to save you? Job is questioned here. God questions Job from the storm, not only putting him in his place, putting him down but helping him recognize his need to be saved and revealing his great power to save. His strength to do it. Job did not need a mealy-mouthed little God coming along answering all his questions. I'm so sorry I offended you, Job. Let me see if I can make this right for us between you and me. No, he needed a God to come out of the storm and say, Who is this that darkens counsel without words? Who's this clueless wonder in front of me who really obviously doesn't understand who I truly am? Let me show you, Job. Wow. And I submit to you, it is exactly what Job needed. And in a nutshell, in in chapter 38 and 39, God says this, If I can feed the lion and the raven, if I can birth the mountain goat and the deer, if I can loose the wild donkey, if I can tame the wild ox, if I can create an ostrich, <laughs> or if I can give the horse his might, the hawk his instincts, the eagle his wings, don't you know I'm big enough to save you, Job? Don't you recognize? I created all this. Do you not believe I have the power to save? Paul says in Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Absolutely. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. And I guarantee you, Job was not disappointed. When God showed up and began to speak, this was not a disappointing, frightening, yes, but not a disappointing moment in the life of Job. He begins to see how great, how 
awesome how powerful God is. He sees a God who, as we sang earlier, is mighty to save. So he needed to be brought low that he might see the height of God's power to save him. God puts Job down. Listen, he puts Job down that he might lift him up in salvation. Isaiah 57.15 tells us, Thus says the one high and exalted who lives forever, whose name is Holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, with God it's both. He dwells in a great place, high, magnified, lifted up but He also dwells in the heart of the lowly, that He might lift them up. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 tells us God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Another song we sing says this, He is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. <laughs> I am the tree bending beneath the weight of His wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I'm unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me, oh, how He loves us. Why does He come on strong, coming out of the storm, like a hurricane? Because of His great love for Job. And I believe he did exactly what Job needed for him to do. To come on strong. Second question. Why does then God answer Job with questions? Out of the storm, he says, I will ask you, and you will instruct me. And again, he doesn't give a single answer to any of Job's questions, not one. But have you ever noticed how often when we ask questions of God we end up with more questions? When we begin to question God's motives, God's power, question what God is doing in our lives, our questions begin to multiply. And sometimes take us into the place of doubts as more questions multiply and there are no answers coming. God doesn't answer Job. He questions Job. He turns it right around on Job and He says questions like these. Chapter 38, verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, it's all I can do to wake up. You know? To get up and out, and I've I got to have my tea, and preferably a couple of bags, you know, before <laughs> I'm awake in the day. Have you ever commanded the morning? The Lord asked Job. Have you ever walked, verse 16, in the recesses of the deep? I like that one. Have you ever walked in the recesses of the deep? Anyone here ever gone scuba diving? Spence? Any lot? Off of Elot? Red Sea? Did you there? Okay. Good, because I was going to tell you, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> How deep have you ever gone? We had a swimming pool when I was a kid growing up, eight feet deep. I'd go down to the bottom of that thing. I was down there. <laughs> The Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean is six miles deep. Drop a stone into it, and it takes an hour to drop all the way to the bottom. An hour. That's deep. 
And God says, you ever walked there, Job? Ever been that deep? (laughs) Verse 17, the Lord says, Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Job, you know, you're crying out for death. Oh, then I can have the peaceful, sweet sleep of death. Really? Have you been there? He says in verse 24, Where is the way that the light is divided? I love this one. Where's the the way of, of the division of light, Job? 400 years ago, Sir Isaac Newton discovered that light could be divided into colors. Into seven different colors you can divide up light. 400 years ago, he figured that out. That's impressive. 4,000 years ago, God told us it could be done. Do you know how? He said to Job. Uh Uh-uh. Verse 33, he said, Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Talking about the stars, the constellations, the planets. Have you fixed all that? Have you put them in your place? This will blow your mind. I partially drew this out of uh, John Corson's application commentary, which is an excellent commentary, but doing a little more research, it goes further than what even he shared. He said, Our sun is so big, if you hollowed it out, it could hold 1.3 million Earths. That's how big the sun is. 1.3 million of our Earth could fit inside a hollow sun. But there's a star called Antares, which if you were to hollow that out, it could hold 64 suns which could hold 1.3 million Earths. In the Hercules constellation, there's another star, which if hollowed out, is big enough to hold 100 million Antares, which can each hold 64 suns, which can each hold 1.3 million Earths. (laughs) We're just getting started. (laughs) The biggest star known to man... And there are likely stars far larger than this, but the biggest one that we know of is called Epsilon. Epsilon can hold one to two million stars the size of that bad boy star in the Hercules constellation, which is the equivalent, check this out, of 27 billions of our sun, each holding 1.3 million Earths. That is big! That's huge! And God puts them all there. I mean, we hear a question when the Lord says, if you hung the stars in the constellations, do you put everything where it's supposed to be and, and you know, organize all that, Job? Job would go, well, it's just some little twinkling lights. It's not Christmas lights, Job. <laughs> As I listen to these questions, I begin to realize that it is nothing short of absolute foolishness and audacity on the part of man to question God at all. When we stop and realize and think, as, as you know, God puts on the brakes for Job after all of Job's questions, and when we hear the questions God asks, we begin to go, I, we put our hand over our mouth. It shuts us up, and we say, Boy, I, I, I'm not asking anything else. You know, it cracks me up what Job says. He says in verse 5 of chapter 40, Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Okay, even twice. But I will not answer anymore. Because he just kept going and going and going with his questions as we so often can do. I'm just going to ask you one question, Lord. Okay, two. Alright, seven or eight. But after that, I'll stop. Okay, we're going to go to twelve. But I promise, I'm not, no more, okay, twenty-seven. But no more questions, Father. Thirty-two, is that alright? You know, and we just keep going with these questions. How arrogant of puny man. 
to question God at all. Romans 9.20, Paul said, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, who do we think we are? Really, where do we think we land in this relationship with Almighty God? And in verse 36 of chapter 18, it tells us, God asked this question, Who has put wisdom in the innermost being? Or given understanding to the mind? That's huge. That's bigger than the whole star thing. Consider this. In the midst of all these measurable and tangible created things that God questions Job about, He throws in this one. How about wisdom? How's the conscience developed? How is it that God created conscious thought? I mean, I, I get dogs. I understand this. I could sit here this morning, I could bring Reggie, my little dog, in here, and I could preach this sermon to him, and he would lick my hand and, and wag his tail and wait for a treat. And I have no clue what I'm talking about. Because he doesn't have that conscious thought that we know separates man from animals. It's not some missing link. It's that God made man different. God gave man something. And it's still, if you sit and think about it too much, it will rock your world. Consciousness. <laughs> Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Well, so Descartes, if I think that you're not, do you cease to exist? I mean, it just starts to hurt the brain to think about all these things. Who can even explain the ability to reason, to think, or to question God at all? Oh, the questions of God stir us up. They strip us of our arrogance and reveal our foolishness in light of His great wisdom. 1 Corinthians one twenty-five: The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And by the way, he already knows that. It's us that need the knowing. Paul writes in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Who has first given to Him that it may be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And as all these godly questions you know, aimed at Job, begin to pile up, he realizes how little he knows. He realizes how foolish every one of his questions are. And he realizes that truth be told, he really has no right to question God at all, even in all his pain. The truth is, when our questions pour out of our frustrations, as they often do, or our questions pour out of hurt, or emotional distress, or worse, when questions pour out of rebellion, please listen, they will never satisfy. They'll just stretch out more questions. Are you saying that we can't approach God with questions? No, you can. But just understand, your questions are going to just create more questions. So we shouldn't approach God? I didn't say that. I said recognize that questioning God is not the solution. I spent the day yesterday watching the kids when Cheryl was at the Beth Moore conference with some of the ladies. Wow. (laughs) I have seen her job and I don't want it. I love my kids. 
But by about 10 o'clock in the morning, I had heard the word dad so many times (laughs) that I said, kids, dad needs five minutes. I'll be right back. And I went and I closed our bedroom door and just went, (sighs) okay. I did that like three more times in the day. Just disappeared for a few minutes, you know. I went and read my book, The Six-Day War, because that was easier. (laughs) Job starts to get it. All these questions. I don't know how God does it. You know, it's why so many parents come up with that great parental phrase, Because I said so! (laughs) Yeah, but why? I... Ah, I said so. That's it. No more discussion. But no more discussion. And our kids realize there's only so much, you know, for us, there's only so many answers we have. God has them all. If God started answering every one of our questions, it would flatten us. It'd wipe us out. We would be the ones saying, okay, 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 I need five minutes. (laughs) Gang, there's a greater reason that God answers Job with questions. A very specific and simple answer to the question, why does God answer Job with questions? And it's simply this. Because He is the answer. Because He is the answer. The questions of God reveal that the answer is God. It's not answers Job needs, it's Adonai. It's not explanations that He needs, it's Elohim. Job doesn't need courtroom justice. Job needs Christ Jesus. And that's where the whole book of Job lands us. At the feet of God, recognizing for all the questions of life that we have, the answer is God. The answer is Him. Listen to the answer hidden in these questions. Back in verse 12, verse 30, uh, chapter 38. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Well, who has? Adonai. Every day. Verse 16, have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Who could, Elohim? Verse 17, have the gates of death been revealed to you? (laughs) Yes, Jesus saw them, being the only one to come back from them by His power to live forever. Verse 24, where is the way that the light is divided? Hey, God is light. Again, He is the answer. Verse 33, Do you know the ordinances of the heavens and fix their rule over the earth? Well, who fixed the stars in place? God did. And it was finger work for Him. You know? Simple. For Him. And who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 tell us, In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Every question the Lord asks Job, trace them through, every question points to one answer, and that is God. Every question leads back to the Father. You want answers, Job? I will question you until you realize that the answer you ever need, the only answer is me. Jesus was in Jerusalem being questioned as usual. Matthew 22 He's peppered all week long with question after question after question. And finally, Jesus asks a question of the Pharisees that shuts their mouths for good. Matthew 22, verse 41. 
While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He? And they said to Him, Well, the son of David. It's a good Jewish answer. And He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call Him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Psalm 110 is that quote. If David calls Him Lord, how is it He's David's son? How does that work, gentlemen? Jesus asked. What do you think about the Christ, Messiah? Whose son is He? Son of David. Yeah, but David calls Him Lord. How does that work? And we're told no one was able to answer Him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask Him another question. Jesus question to the Pharisees, just like God's question to Job, begged one answer, and that is Jesus Himself. How can He be the Son of David? Well, Jesus was the Son of David, directly in the line of King David. In the tribe of Judah was Jesus. But Jesus, having existed before David, was also His Lord. That's how David could call His Son His Lord. Because Jesus is on both sides of the life of David. It's not answers we need. Listen to me. It's not answers we need. It's the answer, Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.17 tells us the substance belongs to Christ. And as I said, you know, as we question the Lord, trying to understand things that are way over our heads, have you noticed not only do questions add more questions, but our questions of God also add to our upheaval. The more I question God, the more stressed out I get. The more worried I get. The more upset. My questions just add to my stress. But what does the Bible tell us? Listen, in His presence, there's peace. When we come to God, Jesus as the answer. Philippians 4.7 The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? The peace of God surpasses comprehension. What does that mean? It means the peace of God is greater than the questions of man. The peace of God goes beyond our getting it, our understanding why everything happens that happens. The peace of God will not come when the Tesoro accident is finally figured out. That will not bring peace. They'll find the answers. They'll figure out, you know, there, there was a, you know, a bolt that was loose or that had fried off that no one recognized it or, or something... And they'll come back and say, yeah, well, that's why it happened. And not a single person connected to that accident will go, well, now we understand. Because those answers don't bring the peace. Jesus brings the peace. And it's in the presence of Jesus Christ that we have peace. Which is why the Lord says in His Word, Psalm 46.10, Cease striving and know that I am God. That's why the Lord answered Job with questions. That's why the Lord came storming into the life of Job. Because Job, after all of this, needed the final cap, and that is, I am God. And I am your answer.
We've been handed the last few weeks some very tangible, actionable invitations from the Lord. One of those just last week was to show compassion to the poor. And there are uh, more packets, by the way. I'm not sure if Russ is going to have them here second hour. Uh, you all just need to know that we have 30 packets to pass out uh, for people to get compassion children. And all 30 went last Sunday with another 20 people on a waiting list, which is great news. That's something you can do. You know, you finish up the teaching and close the Bible, and I can do something here. I can, I can get involved in the life of a child. We talked about before that, you can do something as a watchman for Israel. You can get involved, whether it's as simple as praying for the peace of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, or even getting involved with an organization like Bridges for Peace or so many others that are out there. You can do something to show favor to the people of Israel. You can do something specifically to be a forerunner of the coming storm. There are people in each one of our lives that we can let know, that we can warn lovingly, gracefully, but can let know that there is a storm coming. And what the Bible teaches about what will happen at the end of all things. You can speak those words. These are all very actionable things. But I want you to understand of all of these, to my mind, the most actionable thing a person can possibly do is accept the answer of Jesus Christ in their life. That is first and foremost. And I want to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the answer to your questions? And if you believe that, prove it. Prove it. I'm going to have John sing the song one more time. If you've never accepted Jesus, I say prove that you want to. If that's where your heart is this morning, walk down this aisle and say, Today I proclaim Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If you've already done that, and this may be a time where, you know, oftentimes we just shut down. Okay, sermon's over, song's being played, I'm out of here, you know, I'm done. Don't do that. Some of you have claimed Christ Jesus as Lord, but you've never submitted to Him in baptism. You say, I'm a Christian. I say, prove it. Let your works show your faith. Some in our fellowship claim Christ But your lifestyle leaves little or no room for His Holy Spirit to be at work in you. I'm a Christian. Prove it. I believe Jesus is the answer. Prove it. Give Him control over those areas of your life that you're clinging to, that you're holding on to. Areas of sin, choices that you know, ah, that's not really what would please Him, but, but you know, I, I'm giving Him all this, I'm just going to keep this to myself. And I say, if you believe Jesus is the answer... Prove it. Give up, give in. Submit to Him. Lord, there are still a lot of questions roaming around in our heads even this morning. And we thank You that we can come before You to Your throne of grace to seek help in time of need. But Lord, I'm praying that You will quiet our questions with Your presence. And just help us to find the peace that comes from knowing that You have everything well in hand. May we learn to walk in that, Father. Acknowledging You as our great God and mighty Savior. In Jesus we pray.